Welcome back to History Obscura. With the passing of Great Britain's Queen Elizabeth II, a crown literally passes to the now-styled King Charles III, as well as quite a job. But what is that job exactly? Does it matter at a time when governments, or arguably corporations, are the ones carving our realities? and a monarch seems obligated only to mimic powerful ancestors of the past? The House of Windsor has been in place for a thousand years, and therefore one might say quite seriously that the new king's only role is to ensure that he doesn't bring it crashing down around him. The royal family's official website notes, the monarchy has sometimes been described as an expensive institution with royal finances shrouded in confusion and secrecy. In reality, the royal household is committed to ensuring that public money is spent as wisely and efficiently as possible, and to making royal finances as transparent and comprehensible as possible. The British monarchy is, as you know, a constitutional monarchy. This means that while the sovereign is officially the head of state, the ability to make and pass legislation resides with an elected parliament. In effect, the British monarch has no power except in allocating his or her vast fortunes into a stream of select social programs. According again to the official website of the Brit's royal family, that's royal.uk, the sovereign acts as a focus for national identity, unity and pride gives a sense of stability and continuity, officially recognizes success and excellence, and supports the ideal of voluntary service. Long gone are the days of passionate kings whose mere whims were law, and those who opposed them stood to lose their lives. As a British subject, or indeed a member of a Commonwealth nation, you may have often wondered, do any of your tax dollars or pounds or pesos go to the royal family. So let's take a look. There are three sources of income for the British monarchy. The Sovereign Grant, the Duchy of Lancaster, and the Duchy of Cornwall, plus private investments. A taxpayer-funded payment, known as the Sovereign Grant, is paid to the royal family each year. For the last year's period, this grant was set at £86.3 million, which would be equivalent to about £1.29 per person in the UK. However, work on Buckingham Palace, which is undergoing a 10-year refurbishment plan, drove up the total spending to £102.4 million. This payment, the Sovereign Grant, is based on profits of the Crown Estate, which is a property business owned by the monarch, but run independently. The Crown Estate was originally the name for lands owned by the monarch, and it dates from the time of the Norman Conquest. In 1760, King George III reached an agreement with the government to surrender his income from the Crown Estate. In return, it was agreed that the king and his successors would receive a fixed annual payment. They called this the civil list. 
The civil list was replaced in 2010 by the sovereign grant. Among holdings of the Crown Estate are Regent Street in London and the Ascot Racecourse in Berkshire. It's not the private property of Charles III, nor was it the property of the Queen. It merely belongs to the monarch for the duration of their reign. That means Charles can't sell the Crown Estate or keep the revenue for himself. Normally, Queen Elizabeth was given 15% of the Crown Estate profits from the previous two years, with the government keeping the remainder. However, it was agreed that from 2017, she would receive 25% for the following 10 years to help pay for the refurbishment of Buckingham Palace, as mentioned. Well, she privately owned an 18,000 and some hectare estate called the Duchy of Lancaster, which is now the property of King Charles. The Duchy of Lancaster is administered separately from the Crown Estate. This was established in the 14th century to help fill the coffers of the royal family. Part of the Duchy of Lancaster includes the Savoy Estate, a stretch of prime real estate in central London which houses the iconic Savoy Hotel. The Duchy of Cornwall operates much the same as the Duchy of Lancaster, except that its funds are allocated to the Prince of Wales and his family. That means Prince William and his family are now in charge of what used to be Prince Charles's domain. If you'd like to see more about how the Duchy of Cornwall operates, I highly recommend the TV show Prince Charles Inside the Duchy of Cornwall. So then, what about Commonwealth citizens? Are we paying any tax to the Queen or Charles now? We are not, and neither are the tax-paying citizens or any citizens of the United Kingdom. Since the stipend for the sovereign grant comes from a percentage of the profits made by the Crown Estate, which are in the hands of the monarchy, it means that it comes from the profits of their own holdings. Taxpayers do not actually give any money to the monarch nor the royal family for their continued existence, and neither do members of Commonwealth nations. In fact, in 1992, the Queen volunteered to pay income tax and capital gains tax, and since 1993, her personal income was taxable as for any other taxpayer, and it is assumed Charles will follow suit. He has, after all, inherited his mother's estimated £650 million estate and therefore has no need of taxpayer money. But let's talk about the new king's namesake, which makes for some very interesting gossip. King Charles I was crowned so in 1625 after the death of his father, James I of England and Scotland. You may remember King James as the Scottish king who inherited the throne of England from his mother's cousin, the first Queen Elizabeth. James's visit to Denmark, a country familiar with witch hunts, sparked an interest in the study of witchcraft, which he considered a branch of theology. He attended the North Berwick Witch Trials, the first major persecution of witches in Scotland, and several people were convicted of using witchcraft to send storms against the king's ship. King James became concerned with the threat posed by witches and wrote, 
Demonology in 1597, a book inspired by his personal involvement that opposed the practice of witchcraft and that provided background material for Shakespeare's Macbeth. King James personally supervised the torture of women accused of being witches. King James's advice to his heir, who would be Charles I, was to hold no parliaments but for the necessity of new laws, which would be but seldom. And so, King Charles I did not. He believed in the divine right of kings and was determined to govern according to his own conscience. Many of his subjects opposed his policies, in particular the levying of taxes without parliamentary consent, and perceived his actions as those of a tyrannical, absolute monarch. Charles I's attempts to force the Church of Scotland to adopt Anglican practices led to the bishops' wars and strengthened the position of the English and Scottish parliaments and helped precipitate his own downfall. From 1642, Charles fought the armies of the English and Scottish parliaments in the English Civil War. He was defeated in 1645, held captive, and forced to attend a trial on the charge of high treason. He was convicted and executed in January of 1649. The monarchy was abolished and the Commonwealth of England was established as a republic. That republic ended some 20 years later when the son of the murdered king, Charles II, was asked by Parliament to return and resume his family's royal rule, this time as a constitutional monarchy. However, Charles II was known to spend money lavishly on fashions and frivolous things, and like his father, he disagreed quite fervently with Parliament. He dissolved the English Parliament in 1681 and ruled alone until his death in 1685. It's all a very interesting precedent to our now King Charles III, wouldn't you say? This podcast has been brought to you by Endless Ink Publishing House. And I'm very excited to tell you, Endless Ink is having a short story horror comedy contest. Here are the rules if you're interested in joining. Your story must be in the horror comedy genre, obviously. You must be 18 years old or more to enter. The story should have between 5,000 and 8,000 words and be submitted by Friday, October the 21st of this year before midnight, whenever midnight is where you live. You can send your entry to nextpagejulian at yahoo.com. That's nextpagejulian at yahoo.com. And you need to have a PayPal account if you get any prize money. There will be four winners, including a top prize and three runners-up. First prize is 750 US dollars. Second, third, and fourth places will receive 150 US dollars. 
The four winning stories will be published as a collection to be released on Halloween in 2023. Each story will get a page of art related to the story, and a poster of the collection will also be commissioned. And all winners will receive a copy of the collection before the end of 2023. You can follow Endless Ink on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram in order to find out more and get in touch. Good luck! And thanks for listening! Good night! (laughs) 